Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program and we're in chapter 18 of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path that Leads to Enlightenment. Chapter 18 is titled, God's Creative Action, You Have Free Will. This is where I help you to understand how you can either have a relationship with God and get to enlightenment or not have a relationship with God and get to enlightenment. It's possible for you to get to enlightenment either way. One of the biggest myths in Buddhist communities is some people feel that the Buddha denied the existence of God. This actually isn't true. If you look in Gautama Buddha's teachings, he taught about God because different people during his lifetime had a belief in God. In fact, they had a belief in multiple gods. So he taught about God and helping people understand this being so that they can get to liberation of mind and experience enlightenment where the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But depending on what you've been taught in other venues or other communities, there might be certain things that you're currently understanding about this being God that would actually hinder you from getting to enlightenment. So for example, if you have a fear of God, an enlightened being doesn't have any fear, not even a fear of God. So we're going to be discussing all these various things related to either having a relationship with God and getting to enlightenment or not having a relationship with God. And since God doesn't grant enlightenment, This is why you can actually get to enlightenment in either way, whether you're interested in a relationship with him or not. So welcome to all of you guys. Please that you're here. I'm going to use some visual aids to help us in our class so that I can share the teachings on this topic of God's creative action. You have free will. First, let's just talk about a definition of God, because depending on what you've been taught, depending on what you've been thinking, depending on you know what you've been exposed to, your understanding of God and my understanding might be different, which is completely fine. You know, you're welcome to have whatever understanding of God that you would like. But in terms of understanding what it is that I am going to be sharing with you today, it's important to understand how I'm discussing God and how I'm sharing this teachings, because if your understanding and definition of God is one thing and mine is different, when I'm teaching about this being of God, then you would probably be confused. So let me share with you how I think of God, and then that way you'll understand the teachings that I'm going to be sharing with you today to either how you can have a relationship with God or not have a relationship with God and still get to enlightenment. The way that I define God is as the creator of the universe and the source of all moral authority, the supreme being. And in English, we refer to this being as God. 
But there's other languages, such as Arabic, that they refer to this being as Allah. Or during the lifetime of the Buddha, they refer to the great god of Brahma. And they even refer to other gods as well. But this being of Brahma is who we would refer to in the English language as God. This being is all-knowing and all-powerful. Essentially, they know everything that's happened from the very beginning of creation all the way to the end of whatever is going to happen way, 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 way in the future. They know every single thing that is happening and has happened or will happen. This being of God has the power to do anything that they want. And that's just part of being this supreme being. We call this all-knowing and all-powerful as omniscient and omnipotent. These are words that you might hear referring to all-knowing and all-powerful. When I talk about God, I tend to use the pronoun he because all of my interactions with this being have always been very masculine. And I refer to this being as a he. And if you look at Gautama Buddha's teachings, when he talks about the God of Brahma, He also says that this being is a he as well. But if you refer to this being as a she or no gender at all or however you decide to refer to this being is up to you. But just know that as I talk today, you'll probably hear me use the pronoun he referring to God. And that's the reason why is because in all my interactions, it seems to be a very strong masculine energy because of this powerfulness of this being. Well, as you heard in the definition that I'm sharing, I say here that God is the source of all moral authority. So the next question might be, well, what is moral conduct? Well, moral conduct is this virtuous behavior that you learn as part of the Buddhist teachings. And if you have come from any traditions that include God as part of their practice, then you also probably learn some moral conduct or virtuous behavior there as well. And what this moral conduct is, is holding and manifesting high principles for proper conduct. So things like killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, lying, and substances that cause heedlessness, we can see through the natural law of gamma that these things are harmful. And if we do these things, harm will come to us. Well, it's God who has this moral authority, who understands this, and essentially these natural laws of existence that the Buddha is describing. It's this being of God who created all of this. Even though this being of God, this supreme being, is all-knowing and all-powerful and can basically do anything that they would like to do, this being allows all of us to have free will. We have free will. This being isn't controlling us, even though we might have been taught this in other traditions or in other communities, or sometimes we're taught that God has this plan for us and that it's up to us to figure out what that plan is and then follow that plan exactly. This isn't actually true. And the reason why you can understand this is because, you know, why did you decide to come to class today? Why did you decide to click on this video? Why did you decide to listen to this podcast? Did God force you to do that? Was it God's decision that made you come to this class? Of course not, right? Because you have free will. You chose based on your own free will to come to this class. The hairstyle that you have right now, who forced you to get that hairstyle? Was it God? Uh, Was it God's plan? No, of course not. It was your decision. What about the clothes that you're wearing? Did God force you to purchase these clothes and wear them today? Of course not, right? Because you have free will. So this is how I can teach you. I can 
share something that you can learn that yes, you have free will. And then now you can start reflecting on it and seeing the truth for yourself. It's independently verifiable. Where when we're in traditions where we're taught to just believe, then we don't know what's true or false. But as you guys know, through learning with me, everything I share with you, I share, don't believe me about anything. You need to independently verify the truth for yourself. So here, not only in other topics that I've taught, but in this topic today, you can independently verify what I'm sharing. And this first thing that I'm sharing about free will is you can independently see that for yourself, that the things that are happening in your life, they're based on your decisions and your free will. This being isn't controlling you and dictating what you should or shouldn't do. This being doesn't have a plan for you that you have to subscribe to and figure out and follow in order to please this being of God. So while Gautama Buddha's teachings are guiding students to liberate the mind, he never put God as a central focus in his teachings because your enlightenment is not determined on God or a relationship with God. Your enlightenment is determined on your own decisions and your own choices because you have free will. If you choose to pick up a book and read it to learn about moral conduct and then you ultimately practice moral conduct, that's your free will decisions. If you choose to meditate and train the mind, that's your free will decisions. If you choose to have right speech or make wise decisions about your speech and your relationships so that you're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful with the people around you, and then you notice that people are then polite, kind, friendly, and respectful with you, well, this is your free will choice. It's not God that's controlling you to be polite kind, friendly, and respectful. And it's not God that's controlling you to be impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful. These are our own choices. And as long as the mind associates what's happening in this world as it's God doing these things, if you believe that you don't have free will and you can't see the truth that you actually do have free will, it would be very difficult for you to ever experience enlightenment if the mind thought that everything you were experiencing was based on this being of God. So Gautama Buddha didn't have anything that he could either prove God's existence or disprove God's existence. So he didn't give information to either prove or disprove God. The way that this being functions is he doesn't make it such that everybody knows that he exists. He does this kind of on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So God's power, he has the power to shake this earth, rain down lightning bolts, put the sky completely black if he wanted to. And he could shake the world into fear and letting everybody know, hey, I exist, you must fear me. But that's not what he does because he's a loving God. He has an unconditional love for all beings. So he's not going to do something like that to fear people into doing things. Instead, we all have this free will and freedom of choice. And what we experience in life is based on our decisions, not based on this being and pleasing this being. And this being is either punishing us or rewarding us for various things that we choose to do. These are things that we might have been taught in various communities that there's this being of God that is judging us and then determining whether we go to a good place or a bad place. Now, you 
are wise enough and you have certain people in your life, like maybe a husband, a wife, or children, friends, family, mother and father, would you send your mother or father to burn in hell for eternity? Or would you send your children to burn in hell for eternity or your life partner? Would you send them to hell to burn for eternity just based on a couple of mistakes that they might have made in their life? Well, of course not, right? You wouldn't do that because you have a certain amount of wisdom and a certain amount of unconditional love for people that are around you and you wouldn't subject them to that. But unfortunately, a lot of people have been taught that this is what God does and people believe this. And therefore, when they understand that and they start believing that, there's this fear that oftentimes comes into the mind around this being of God. And then sometimes we turn away from this being out of fear. Because if you can imagine living side by side with somebody and just constantly fearing them every single second, this creates a real contentious relationship amongst two human beings who maybe fear each other. Well, this being of God, if we go around fearing this being, then it would create a real contentious relationship for us. It would create a really difficult time to be able to interact with this being and have a relationship with this being. So the things that I'm going to be sharing with you, if you are interested in having a relationship with this being, I'm going to help you understand how to have a healthy and wholesome relationship with this being where you're not thinking of punishment and rewards. You're not thinking about this being judging you. You're not thinking of this being controlling you and forcing you to do one particular thing or another. Even though these might be things that you've been taught in the past, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily true. And because we oftentimes function on belief and we just believe the person who's in front of the room telling us something and we don't necessarily independently verify it for ourselves, the mind can very easily go into what the Buddha describes as ignorance or the unknowing of true reality or delusion or confusion or misunderstandings. So the things that I'm going to share with you today, I'm going to invite you to independently verify these for yourself, like this free will. You can verify that this free will is 100% true based on the decisions that you're making in your life. Who's forced you to make any decision that you've ever made in your life? You're choosing to make these decisions, not God. This being isn't forcing you, and this being also isn't punishing you and rewarding you. Based on the decisions that we make, we experience those results. And if we make wise decisions, we experience wholesome results. Whereas if we make unwise decisions, then we're going to experience unwholesome results. It's our decisions. And if you come from a Christian background, Jesus Christ would have said, you reap what you sow. He said exactly the same thing as the Buddha, but the Buddha described it as the natural law of karma. These teachers are essentially describing the exact same thing. So what the Buddha is describing in this natural law of karma is that when we make wise decisions, wholesome things happen. And when we make unwise decisions, unwholesome things happen. And it's based on our own free will choices. And the more wisdom that we have about these natural laws, particularly the natural law of karma, then we're more inclined to make wise decisions that lead to wholesome results because we understand this natural law of karma. We did exactly the same thing with the natural law of gravity, that early in our life, 
we were very confused, we were unawakened, we had this ignorance or unknowing of true reality about the natural law of gravity. And because of that, we fell down, we hit our elbow, we busted our knee, we hurt our head, we dropped possessions that broke and we cried and we were very upset and we struggled and had difficulties in the world because of this natural law of gravity that we were unwise to. We didn't know how to make wise decisions related to this natural law. So we struggled and had difficulties in the world. So what's happening in the unenlightened mind is exactly the same thing is that we don't understand the natural law of gamma. And because of that, we make unwise decisions and we struggle and have difficulties in the world. So these natural laws of existence that the Buddha explained and that he invites you to independently verify for yourself, you can see the truth for yourself. And now as your mind awakens to this wisdom, you can make wiser choices. And the wiser choices that you can make when you gain the wisdom of God and this being of God is if you choose to have a relationship, you can have a healthier relationship because you're more wise about this being. But ultimately, if you choose not to have a relationship with God, that's completely fine too. And I can still help you get to enlightenment with no relationship with God. But at the end of our discussion today, I'm going to explain to you one thing that you would need to at least be able to do in terms of not having a relationship with God. There's this one thing that you're going to need to be able to cultivate in the mind if you're choosing not to have a relationship with God. So we'll talk about that towards the end of today's discussion. So let's go to the next thing and talk about what Gautama Buddha shared related to his teachings and some of the things that he said related to God. Of course, I don't have time to explain all those things, but between the group learning program and the Pali Canon and English study group, between the first volume of this book series and all the other volumes of the book series, slowly but surely, you'll see his teachings where he talked about God and what he discussed. But here's a little bit of a summary just to kind of get you started. Is that the Buddha never denied the existence of God. He instead taught people how to attain enlightenment while still having an understanding of this being of God. And like I mentioned, during the lifetime of the Buddha, there was belief in multiple gods. So he talked about these different topics to help people understand these beings as it relates to the cycle of rebirth but ultimately what he did is he focused people's attention on their own decisions, on cultivating wisdom, and with that wisdom, making wise decisions for their own life because we have free will. And I'm going to be sharing with you one of the Buddhist teachings about God today in our class. As the Buddha discussed these various gods that people believed in, he had to help them understand that everything was about their own choices because during the lifetime of the Buddha, there was this belief that only a certain class of people or a certain category of people were able to pray to God. So what the common people were taught is that they needed to go to these Brahmin priests and pay money. And then when they paid this money, those Brahmin priests would pray on their behalf and those people would just go home. They couldn't have a relationship with God. Well, this bred a lot of corruption because you go to the Brahmin priest today and they say, oh, it's $5 for me to pray for you. Okay, well, I can't pray. The only way I'm going to get a prayer through is if I pay money. So they would pay money and then they would go home and then their life would still be struggling. So they go back and they say, I need you to pray for me some more. Well, today it's $10. Why? Well, because I said so. 
and you can't pray, right? So it bred corruption. And the Buddha knew that this wasn't working because if somebody paid somebody to pray and then they went home and they argued and they were harsh and aggressive with their speech and their actions and so forth, they're going to have a very difficult life. So it wasn't about paying somebody to pray on your behalf and your life got better. It was about cultivating wisdom so that now with this wisdom, you make wiser choices about how you interact with individuals in your life. And because of that, then you can cultivate this peacefulness in your life. As I mentioned, Gautama Buddha's objective wasn't to either prove or disprove God's existence. Instead, his objective was to share the teachings that lead to liberation of the mind, to this enlightened mental state, which is not based on belief. It's based on this independently verifiable truth to acquire wisdom, like something simple like the five precepts. Oftentimes we're taught these are rules or commandments or something like this. Uh, some kind of doctrine that we have to follow. We're going to be punished if we don't do these things. This isn't how Gautama Buddha taught. Instead, he's explaining how by practicing these five precepts and guiding you with this wisdom, that it's going to lead to a more peaceful life. Because if we're outside killing and murdering beings, wow, what kind of life are we going to have? We're going to have so much fear. People are going to be chasing us, trying to kill us or do harmful things to us. Or if we're stealing from people, we're going to have all kinds of problems. If we're having sexual misconduct where we're cheating on people or there's somebody who has a partner and we're having sex with that person, even though they have a partner, you can be murdered over these kind of things. How can you cultivate a peaceful mind and a peaceful life if people are chasing after you, trying to murder you and beat you up and cause you harm? And same thing with lying and taking substances that cause heedlessness. We can see the truth for ourselves that if we lie, and we have lied in the past as we were children and growing up, as we lied, people couldn't trust us. People didn't look at us as being trustworthy and dependable, somebody that we can rely on. And then when we took substances that cause heedlessness, if you've ever done any of these kind of things, you know, you made haphazard decisions when your mind was heedless, you maybe woke up the next day with a very bad headache or hungover, you had difficulties at work, you had difficulties in your relationships, we can see for ourselves that our decisions and our choices to not have wholesome moral conduct, then it leads to some harm. And these harms that we're experiencing isn't from God. It's from our own decisions that we chose to do these things. But at one point when we might have been doing those things, we were lacking wisdom. We didn't have the wisdom that these things are going to lead to unwholesome results. So rather than think about the Buddhist teachings as rules or commandments or God is dictating these things that you are required to follow or else you're going to be punished, nobody's interested in living under that kind of fear and that kind of cloud, right? Instead, the way that you look at these teachings of liberation of mind and getting to enlightenment as guidance, that it would be wise for you to learn these teachings, to cultivate this wisdom, and make these wiser decisions in your life that lead to improved outcomes in our life. So that's what the Buddha focused on is helping you to cultivate wisdom and make wise decisions about how you conduct yourself in life. Because by you doing that, then with this wisdom of the natural law of gamma, you'll experience more wholesome results in your life. But when we lack that wisdom, we're going around making decisions that we think are the best, but then they turn out 
unwell and unwholesome results come back to us and we're confused and we don't know why because we lack wisdom. But when we gain this wisdom, then we can make wise decisions. So Gautama Buddha focused the mind on understanding this natural law of gamma and these natural laws of existence, understanding this right view that we're the one who causes all the difficulties and struggles in our life. And if we have successes in our life, it's through our decisions. And of course, there's friends and family members who are supporting us and encouraging us and contributing to our successes. But it's still our decision to be in a relationship with these people, to cultivate polite, kind, friendly, and respectful relationships so that people are willing to contribute to our life. So as we develop right view and we understand that any kind of discontent feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, any of these discontent feelings and others are being caused by these pollutions that are in the mind. And when we eliminate these pollutions, then through that training, now we can experience this brightness and this radiance. But it's through our own decisions that this is occurring, not because of God. So it's our own free will, our own choices and decisions based in wisdom that's leading to improved results. So the Buddha shared this as part of his teachings. As I mentioned, he shares in his teachings at different places about God. And I would like to share this one with you. And then I'm going to open up to questions about anything that you guys would like to talk about related to what I've discussed so far. This is just one area where Gautama Buddha talks about God. So if you've ever been taught that Gautama Buddha denied the existence of God, you can see right here that he actually is talking about God. He just wasn't trying to prove or disprove God's existence, but helping you to see that you have free will. So here, don't let the title confuse you. The title is, All is Caused by God's Creative Action. All is Caused by God's Creative Action. He says, Then, monks, I approach those aesthetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine in view as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, all that is caused by God's creative activity. And I said to them, is it true that you venerable ones hold such a doctrine in view? Okay, so let me give you some background. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there were many different teachers who were claiming that it was their teachings that led to enlightenment. But the Buddha knew that he had gotten to enlightenment because he could experience it for his own mind. And he had actually studied with two other teachers and those teachings didn't lead to his enlightenment. So he needed to go out and actually discover the teachings for himself. And this is one of the things that makes a Buddha a Buddha is that they discover the teachings that lead to enlightenment themselves. So there were these various communities and various teachers who all were claiming that it was their teachings that led to enlightenment. And they would oftentimes congregate in different areas and kind of eat together because they were collecting alms food or offerings and donations from the same people. They would just walk down the street and if people would like to offer them food, they would offer them food and then they would kind of congregate in a certain area and they would sometimes talk. So the Buddha is approaching some aesthetics which are people who are on this path to enlightenment, not necessarily his students, but other aesthetics. And Brahmin, who are these Brahmin priests that 
were told that only they could pray to God on other people's behalf. So the Buddha is approaching these other aesthetics and these Brahmin priests and saying, is it true that you venerable ones hold this doctrine in this view that it's God's creative activity that is essentially creating all these things that we experience in terms of pleasure, pain, and neither pain nor pleasure? And when I asked them this, they affirmed it. So basically they agreed. They said, yes, it's God who is causing these pleasurable feelings in our mind, these painful feelings in our mind, and these neither painful nor pleasant. So these happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, these people are saying God's the one who's causing that in our mind. And the painful feelings, the sadness, the anger, the frustration, these other aesthetics and Brahmin, they're saying, yeah, God's causing all of that. Or this boredom or loneliness or this displeasure, this uncomfortableness. They're saying God's the one who's causing that in our mind. So they affirmed it to the Buddha that, yes, that's what they felt. That was their belief. That was their view. Then I said to them, in such a case, is it due to God's creative activity that you might destroy life, take what is not given, indulge in sexual activity, speak falsehood, produce argumentative speech, speak harshly, indulge in idle chatter, that you might be full of longing, have a mind of ill will, and hold wrong view. So he's saying, okay, well, if God's the one who's causing all these feelings in your mind, is he also the one who's forcing you to kill and steal and have this sexual activity and lie and speak in argumentative ways and harshly have idle chatter. And when he says full of longing, this is craving. When he says have a mind of ill will, this is anger, hatred, and ill will. And hold a mind of wrong view, this is the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. As he's saying, is it all, all of this is because of God too? And he says, those who fall back on God's creative activity as the essential truth have no interest to do what should be done and to avoid doing what should not be done, nor do they make an effort in this respect. So essentially what he's saying is, is if you believe God's doing all these things and he's controlling your life and you don't have free will, then you don't even have an interest to do what should be done or not do what should be done in order to essentially get to enlightenment. Because here, this last paragraph, he says, since they do not apprehend as true and valid anything that should be done or should not be done, they are muddle-minded, meaning confused in the mind. They do not guard themselves, restraining the mind and guarding the mind. And even the personal designation aesthetic could not be legitimately applied to them. So an aesthetic is someone who's on the path to enlightenment and looking to liberate the mind. So if somebody feels that it's God who's causing everything that we're experiencing in this life, he's saying you're not even on the path to enlightenment because if God is controlling everything that's happening in this life, then we're just robots and we have no ability to improve our life whatsoever. So when you went to school and you learned how to read and write or you know, you graduated high school or college or where, however far you went with your education, or if you went into a career and you got some job training and you have a certain skill and job, 
all of that was based on your own decisions. So whatever income you have, whatever material possessions you're able to acquire for your life, whatever basic necessities that you have in terms of food, water, clothing, shelter, medical care, these are all decisions that you made in order to get educated and have a professional job and be able to afford these things for yourself. God's not providing these things for you, but it's your decisions that are leading to your acquiring of these things. And it, the Buddha is helping his students see here that it's your own free will, your own choices that are leading to whatever results that you're experiencing in life, rather than God causing all of these things for us. So all is caused by God's creative action. Really what this is, is all is not caused by God's creative action. God has the ability to control what's going on in the world, but he doesn't because who would ever be interested in living in that world where we're all just robots? None of us would be interested in that. We would be interested in having our own free will and making our own choices. So the Buddha is explaining that to his students here because as long as we think that God is controlling things, then why would we ever do anything to learn? Why would we try to improve our own decisions and our own wisdom to make wiser choices if somebody else is controlling everything that's going on in our life. But that's not the truth. The truth is, is that we can make wise decisions to improve our life. We can gain more wisdom. We can gain more skills. We can make wiser decisions about what we're doing in life in terms of our job and our personal relationships, where we live, what we choose to do. All of these things are based on our own free will. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have about God or this being of God or this free will that I'm talking about here. The way that you ask questions is you put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and the moderators will see that and be sure that your question gets asked. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Yes, thank you, David. Max is asking in Zoom. Okay, so the way that beings are in this world and the way that we need to think about it in order to get to enlightenment is that all beings are equal, that there's no being above us or below us. But when I say supreme being, what I'm sharing is that this being has this all-knowing knowledge and this all-knowing power. They're able to do anything and anything that they would like at any moment. They don't wield that power. This being God doesn't wield the power. This is what you're going to hear in a little bit where sometimes we pray and if somebody's asking God for favors, treating him like a genie in a bottle, and then he doesn't do what that person wants, that person get angry and and upset and turn away from God. And sometimes people turn away from a relationship with God because they think he hasn't produced this miracle that they want. Like if your mom is sick in the hospital and you're praying for God to save her and then she dies, my goodness, that person's probably going to hate God at the end of that situation. And this is one of the reasons why people have turned away from God because of their lack of wisdom of this being of God and they think that he's supposed to save and perform this miracle. And when he doesn't do that, they feel God's turned their back on them. So they turn their back on God. So this being of God, when I say supreme being, I mean, he has this power and this ability to do things. 
but he doesn't do that because the problem isn't in this example that our mom is sick right sickness is impermanence the problem is is that our mind is craving permanence we want mom to be permanently healthy that's the real problem that's happening here and god hasn't caused our mom to be sick what's caused our mom to be sick for example is maybe she doesn't exercise maybe she eats bad food maybe she's made some choices in her life that wasn't so wonderful and that's what's led to her sickness or maybe she's just old and the body is not permanent so because we misunderstand these things if we think that god is controlling the world and someone close to us gets sick then we blame god or if we pray to God and we ask for favors and he doesn't do it, then we blame God, right? This is what we do when we have a lack of wisdom and we have wrong view. So all beings are equal. God is equal. He's not domineering over top of us and controlling us with a black cloud and lightning bolts. But he does have this power that human beings or animals just don't have. That's why he's a supreme being. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, Tonka in Zoom is asking, I don't feel that I have control over my thoughts. And if a thought, if a uh, thought to, to do something doesn't arise, I can't do that since it never came to mind. How can I have a free will to do it or not in that case? Tony, I'm having a bit of challenge hearing you. I think it might be the microphone or the audio. I wonder if um, maybe Miranda or Rick could read the questions. Sure. Yes, sir. Tonka's question is, I don't feel that I have control over my thoughts. And if a thought to do something doesn't arise, I can't do that since it never came to mind. How can I have free will to do it or not in that case? So let me see if I'm understanding the question. So if a thought comes to mind, she's not sure whether she can do it or not? I think yes, if a thought does not come to mind. Tonka, do you have the ability to unmute? There she goes. Okay, yeah, let's hear straight from Tonka. Sure. I was just thinking about uh, one situation. I, I forgot to do something, and I felt so bad about that. But then I was thinking... Oh my goodness, it just never came to the mind. So how can I be responsible in, in a case like that? Because that thought simply never came to the mind. Mm -hmm. So how, how do I have a free will? If a thought to do something uh, or not to do something simply never comes to the mind. Mm -hmm. Like that's where the question is coming from because if a thought comes, I feel I can decide if I'm going to act on it or not. Okay. But if, if a thought never comes to the mind, then like, I don't see how I have free will there because I truly wanted to, to remember something, but I simply didn't because the thought never came to the mind. Okay. There's two aspects to this question. So the first one is the quality of your memory is directly related to how much pollution is in your mind or not and how much pollution in, is in your mind is your personal choice based on studying the teachings based on training the mind so it is your choice about ultimately how the quality of the mind either has memory or doesn't 
So if we are lacking good memory, this isn't because of our brains being deficient or we're no good or we're a terrible human being. It's because the mind is very muddled, like what the Buddha is describing here. When there's pollution of craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind, the mind's very muddled. So we don't have good memory and we forget things really easily. But when we make the choice through our own free will to learn these teachings, train the mind, and improve the quality of our mind to have better memory, this is now improving our ability to remember things and then take action on them. So that's the first part. The second part is that even with a outstanding memory, there's going to be an occasional thing that you forget because you can't permanently remember every single thing. Right. This is the universal truth of impermanence. So you might have the intention to remember something and take action on that, but you're not going to be able to remember every single thing. That's the mind craving permanence, wanting to remember every single thing, not realizing that it's impossible for you to do so. So by training your mind and eliminating the pollution, you will improve the quality of your mind to be able to remember things. But even with that, there's going to be the occasional thing that you forget. And you've just got to let go and realize, okay, well, I meant to do that this evening on my trip out to the store, but I forgot. So you know what? I'll do it tomorrow or the next day. No big deal. It doesn't have to be done today, right? So this is where I think your question was asking. But if you have something to follow up that I didn't explain for you, feel free to follow up and I'll answer that question. Thank you very much. That makes sense. Okay, you're welcome. And then also on Zoom, Chantana asks, does God in your definition fit in any of the five realms of existence that the Buddha taught? Yes. So God is typically associated with the heavenly realm. These beings in the heavenly realm are formless beings and God is a formless being. But it's important to understand that while we call them realms, they're actually all right here, right? So we say realms and oftentimes we're taught to believe that hell's like deep in the earth, you know, this burning place and heaven is like really far away somewhere up in the sky. But this actually isn't true. Just like there's a human being sitting in this chair right now. If there was animals around here, I can get up and there could be a dog that would sit here or there would be a cricket or a gecko. Just like an animal could be sitting here and a human could be here. These are two different realms, the animal realm and the human realm. Essentially, they're beings that are in this existence. So once David, this being David, gets up and leaves this chair, there could be a heavenly being that sits here. There could be an afflicted spirit. There could be a hell being, right? So when we say realms, we tend to think of them as being really far away in separated places, and these beings aren't interacting with each other. But in reality, they're all within the same time and space, and all of these beings can interact with each other. So God is typically associated with the heavenly realm, but in reality, God is everywhere around. Because he's a formless being, you can't point to him and say, God is right here, because God's also over here, and God's over there, and God's over here. So he's a formless being that is just everywhere around us, just like heavenly beings, afflicted spirits, and hell beings, they can be here or there or different places. But God has this unique ability that he is everywhere at all times. He knows everything that's going on and he has this complete power to do anything that he would like to do. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Uh, Her follow-up question is, um, the God that the Buddha mentioned, 
Does he fit into any of the five realms of existence as Deva? What a Deva is, is this is a word that's used to refer to heavenly beings. So when I say heavenly beings, somebody else might translate that as a Deva. So God isn't a Deva. God is a different being. He's not a heavenly being. He's associated with the heavenly realm, but he's his own unique being as a God rather than a heavenly being or a Deva. Thank you, sir. That actually answered one of the questions that I was going to ask also. Uh, do you see that Rick has his hand raised? Let's go to him for his question. Yes, thank you, Miranda. Um, Chris from Facebook asks, what is the difference between the awakened state and God? Is there a difference? And is there a difference between God and the Buddha? Yes. So I'll answer these separately. And then if you guys, when you ask questions, if you could just ask one at a time, because my mind's trained to just focus on one thing at a time, rather than answering one question and holding the other question in my mind, what I do is I just listen to the first question and answer it. And then after I'm done, I'll let you ask the second one and I'll, I'll answer that one. So the first one, go ahead and repeat that, Rick, so that I can hear that. Sure. Let me get back to the page. Okay, Chris asks, what's the difference between the awakened state and God? Is there a difference? Okay, yes, there's a complete difference. So God is a being, the supreme being, where the awakened state is the mind that you've cultivated and trained to eliminate the three poisons and more detailed, the 10 fetters, and your mind is now no longer experiencing any discontent feelings. It's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So a human being and a heavenly being can get to enlightenment where the mind is no longer experiencing discontentedness. It's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. This being of God is its own separate being, and God is already enlightened. God is the one who created all these natural laws. So his mind has got deep, 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 deep wisdom about these teachings. So these are two separate things. Your mind getting to enlightenment and the enlightened state, it's a mental state versus the being of God. Okay, thank you, sir. And the follow-up question is, um, if there is a difference between God, is there a difference between God and Buddha? Yes. So some people that misunderstand what a Buddha is, they will sometimes refer to Buddha as a god, but he's actually not a god. If you look at his teachings, he describes this as part of his teachings. What a Buddha is, is he meets three criteria, three primary criteria, is they study the teachings and attain enlightenment on their own. So they basically acquire the wisdom of how to get to enlightenment on their own without any teachers or any guides. And then once they awaken to enlightenment, they spend the rest of their life sharing their teachings and helping countless people get to enlightenment for the rest of their life. And then the third criteria is they leave the teachings in such a condition that after their death, countless more people get to enlightenment after their death. These are the three primary criteria. Independently awaken to enlightenment without any teachers or guides, that they dedicate the rest of their life to sharing the teachings and helping countless people get to enlightenment, then their teachings are preserved in such a way and they leave them in such a condition that countless more people can get to enlightenment after their death. So these are the three primary criteria of a Buddha. They're a human being who has transcended all 
the pollution of mind and now train their mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Okay, so that's what a Buddha is. They're a teacher, they're a guide. But God, as you've heard, is this formless being who has this deep knowledge, this deep wisdom, of course, this deep amount of love, this all-knowing and all-powerful being. Thank you, so there are no more questions on Facebook at this time. Okay, Miranda, you've got your hand up. Yes, um, Chantana had a follow-up question to what you were saying about the realms being um, kind of all around us. She asks, so some people might truly connect with God as we are in the same space and time? Yes, so some people have evidence in their life that God exists, and they know with 100% certainty that this being exists. Other people, maybe not. They haven't had those experiences. Because of the universal truth of impermanence, not everybody has had experiences where they know with 100% certainty that God exists. And the way that God functions is he doesn't do things where he shakes the earth and rains down lightning bolts and turns the sky black, even though he could, in order to convince people that he exists. Or when you did something wrong, he could zap you with a lightning bolt right away, right? You know, if you killed somebody, zap, you know, or if you uh, stole something, zap, you know, this is how you know that you have free will and God isn't punishing you. Because if he was really trying to control people and we were all robots and we have to live to what he dictates to us, then that's what he would do. And he doesn't do that. So this being of God is this loving being that doesn't try to control us and force us to do things. But he does show up in people's lives at different times when we're open to him. And where he's able to show us certain things, he's able to help us see his existence. Because he does like it when we believe in him and we know that he exists. But he's not attached to that. He's not attached to us worshiping him. And he's not interested in us fearing him at all. But we'll get into a lot of that stuff as we go in today's class. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, it seems that since we have free will and God is not controlling us to do or not do anything, the question comes to mind, can one ask for or receive guidance from God. Yes, and we're going to talk about that as part of our class today. Um, I do see that Rick has his hand raised. Let's go to him for his question, sir. Sure, we can go yes, to Rick. Sir. And I would like to just mention to Tony, if uh, Tony, if your microphone gets fixed for any reason, uh, you're welcome to start moderating again. I'm, I'm not sure if it was a problem that is persisting or if it's something that you've been able to resolve. We know it's not permanent, but <laughs> but I'm not sure when you might be able to resolve it either during class or afterwards. Go ahead, Rick. Okay. Uh, sure. Um, Chris follows up with this question. What is the difference in similarities between God and Nibbana? There is no similarities because God is a, a separate being from this mental state of enlightenment. So Think about enlightenment or nibbana as this mental state that individual beings can acquire and attain. So a human being and a heavenly being can become enlightened, but when they're enlightened, they're not a god. 
right? They've just transcended all the pollution that's in the mind. They've eliminated all that pollution. And now the mind's been purified. It's been trained. But once you get to enlightenment, you're not God. That being of God existed as the very first being and then created what he created. And now all of these other beings and the cycle of rebirth and the natural laws of existence and everything else is all based on this system essentially that was created by this supreme being but you getting to enlightenment you wouldn't be a god at that point that's why a buddha is not a god there's still a human being who's a teacher uh it appears we have no more questions on facebook and youtube at this time sir all right so let's continue to talk about gautama buddha's teachings as it relates to some things that might conflict with what you've been taught before if you've been taught that the goal in life is to have just one life and that's what you have and that you are then going to believe in a god or believe in a savior and then by that belief alone you're going to get to eternal life this isn't true this is in conflict with everything that we know about the natural laws of existence that this universal truth of impermanence that getting to eternal life and only having one life isn't the truth based on what we can see around us when we look at the world around us do we see anything that's existing permanently so the buddha left these undeclared teachings that the world is eternal the world is not eternal the world is finite the world is infinite you can see them here on the screen and i have them in chapter 18 as well where the buddha left these as undeclared teachings and he didn't teach whether there is a soul or there isn't a soul so if you've been taught that there's a soul in the body and that transcends this life and continues forward or even shows up in another existence the buddha actually never taught this he didn't teach whether there is a soul or there isn't a soul because it conflicts with the universal truth of impermanence if he taught that there was a permanent soul that moves from life to life this would be a complete opposite contradiction of the universal truth of impermanence so he didn't teach whether there is a soul or there isn't a soul and then also in terms of what you experience as an enlightened being he left once you attain enlightenment and die he left what happens next as an undeclared teaching if anything at all so if you go through life and you don't get to enlightenment we know with 100 percent certainty that there's going to be rebirth in one of the five realms and this is based on craving in your gamma what realm you're actually reborn into and what condition of that existence that you're in but if you attain enlightenment in this life then the rest of your life your mind's going to be peaceful calm serene and content with joy no longer experiencing any anger or frustration or sadness or any of these other discontent feelings your mind is going to be so peaceful and joyful you're not going to care what's next because if there's something next which we don't know it's an undeclared teaching if there is something next it's either as good as what you're experiencing now in the enlightened mental state or it's better or there may not be anything next the buddha didn't teach whether there is or isn't something next and if you continue through this book series of all 13 books you're going to encounter content where i shared that the reasons why the buddha may not have taught what 
is potentially next, if anything at all. I give like three different potential reasons why he didn't declare these teachings. So if you've been taught that your goal in this life is to believe, 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 worship, 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 you're going to please this God. And then when you die, you're going to go get to live in heaven for eternity. This goes against everything that you have learned and potentially seen and independently verified yourself based on the universal truth of impermanence. That that getting to a realm that is permanent, you know, how could the heavenly realm be permanent when everything else around us is impermanent as this universal truth? So when you start independently verifying the truth for yourself, you can see that things that you might have been taught in the past just aren't true. And those people weren't necessarily teaching you those things out of deception or any ill will or anything like that. But typically people who are teaching these kind of things truly believe what it is that they're teaching. But that's the whole problem is that it's belief. It's not based on independent verification. So when we just believe and we don't know what's true or false, throughout life over multiple thousands of years, then people can kind of slip in things or change things. The oral tradition is things gets changed. And even in a written tradition where things are translated from one book to the next, things gradually change because of the universal truth of impermanence. So as things are gradually changing, then where we are today, you know, 2022 years later after Jesus's death, in over 2,500 years after the Buddha's death, if you're reading books or you're listening to a teacher teach, the only way that you know whether something's true or false is if you independently verify it for yourself, and that's where you get to wisdom. Because all the books that we have, all of the teachings that we have in oral tradition, they're subject to impermanence. So the way that the Buddha gives us to cut through that is to independently verify it for yourself. And then there are certain teachings like this where he just didn't declare them for one reason or another. So it's important that you let go of any kind of craving or desire for eternal life, or that you let go of any craving or desire to be with this being of God for eternity. And we're going to talk about that here in a moment. So here are some things that will help you if you're interested in having a relationship with God. Because it's not required that you have a relationship with God, but if you are going to have a relation with God, you're going to need to adjust your thinking on a few things in order to get to enlightenment. And if you're interested to have this relationship, it's not going to hinder you. So why it's not required to have a relationship with God, having a relationship will not hinder you if you learn and practice in the way that I'm going to share with you. The first one is you need to have right view. Right view is understanding and practicing that everything that you experience is based on your own decisions. It's a result of your own decisions. Your own choices and decisions are leading to everything you're experiencing, whether it's the discontentedness in your mind, whether it's your child yelling at you, whether it's you got a flat tire today. All of these things are based on your own decisions, not as punishment and rewards, but based on your own decisions. Why did the tire go flat? Well, it got worn out. Why are my children yelling at me? Because I yell at my children. And I taught them through my own conduct that when I yell, they're learning that. So now they're yelling at me when they're 12 or 14 years old, right? Or whenever they get to a point where they're starting to yell. 
that's because that's what you've taught them. That's the results of your decisions. So if we think that these things are happening based on God, then we don't have right view. So it's the Four Noble Truths that is helping us to establish right view and understanding that it's craving, desire, attachment that's causing all the discontent feelings in our mind. And by accepting responsibility for those discontent feelings, now we can actually focus on the real problem and actually fix them. If we blame other people for the problems that we experience in our life, then the tendency is that we try to fix other people. And that's why our life doesn't improve because we keep trying to fix other people. We're not focusing on the real problem, which is our own mind. So as long as we're believing that other people are causing the problems in our life and we're blaming them, then not only are we not focusing on the real problems, but we tend to push those people out of our life thinking that's going to solve the problem when it really doesn't. And the same thing happens with God. If people believe that God is causing all the problems in their life and they're falsely attributing what's happening in their life and they keep praying and praying and praying for God to change things, but they themselves aren't working on change and improving their wisdom and making wiser decisions, then things don't get better in their life. And then what ultimately sometimes happens is people decide to push God out of their life and no longer have a relationship with him because they think that he's punishing them with all these unwholesome things that are happening. But in reality, what's truly happening is they're not cultivating wisdom. They're not working on their own inner change, their own inner development. They're attributing the problems in their life to God because of wrong view. And now because of that wrong view, they're not focusing on the real problem and therefore they're not experiencing real solutions. So in order to get to enlightenment, you have to establish right view where you understand that the feelings and emotions you have in the mind are being caused by craving, desire, attachment, and that it's your own inner work by accepting responsibility for your feelings and what's happening in your life by you accepting responsibility for these things, then you can make wiser decisions to improve it. So if our kids are yelling at us because we think they're a bad kid, then this is unfortunate because they're yelling because they lack the wisdom of how to have calm and wholesome conversations. And perhaps they might have learned that from us. So now by us changing our behavior, by us improving the way that we interact with our children, based on acquiring wisdom and now us being calm and us having conversations and us having clear discussions with our children, our children start to learn to now talk to us in wholesome ways because that's what we're doing and they're modeling our conduct. So if we just blame other people for the problems, then we're not having right view. If we have this craving in the mind that we want things from God and we pray to God treating him like a genie in a bottle, then this is part of that wrong view and it's coming from craving. So if I prayed and I wanted a bigger house or I want more money or I want a better job or I want a better car and then these things aren't occurring, once again, people tend to push God out of their life and they think that God doesn't exist. But in reality, they've just been taught inaccurate information. They've been taught false truths. So if you've been taught that you can pray and then God will do things for you, and then those things don't happen, oftentimes people think that God doesn't exist. 
But what this really is, this is one's mind's own craving, that the mind is craving and craving and craving, wanting things and thinks that God's going to give them to you. But the only way that you get a better income or you get a bigger house, you get a nicer car, or you get better relationships is by you making decisions to do those things. And you need wisdom to be able to do that. So if we treat God like a genie in a bottle and we think that he's going to create goodness in our life, then we're truly not understanding right view in this natural law of gamma, that everything's occurring based on cause and effect or action and result. For example, if I choose to be polite, kind, friendly, or respectful, then people will choose to be polite, kind, friendly, or respectful with me. And conversely, if I'm impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful, then people will be that way with me. So I can go into a building and I can worship God all day long, but if I walk outside and I'm harsh and aggressive in the parking lot, people are going to be harsh and aggressive with me. God didn't create that, but it was my own decisions that created that. So I can go into a building and worship God all day long, but if I'm making unwise choices about my conduct, then I'm going to experience unwholesome results, not because God's punishing me, but because I lack the wisdom of how to make wise decisions and I lack the control of the mind to be able to make those wise decisions. So if we don't think about God as a genie in a bottle, then we can understand more about this being. Now think about this and now let's kind of reflect on it and practice it. I've just taught you that God is not a genie in a bottle. I also taught you don't believe me. So you can practice this right now and see if what I'm saying is true. You can put your hands together or pray however you normally pray and ask God for a million dollars. And if you get that million dollars, you'll give it away to all the poor people or people that are in need or people that need help. So you can put your hands together and pray right now. And if a million dollars shows up for you, then God is a genie in a bottle. And what I just taught you is not true. But if you put your hands together and you pray for a million dollars to show up and it doesn't show up, that's your truth that God is not a genie in a bottle. He does not grant wishes, even though this is what we might have been taught in the past. So this is where you need to independently verify these things and see that every part of your life and things that you've experienced is a result of your decisions. What you can do if you choose to pray, if you like, is let God know that you believe in his existence and that you know that he exists or that you're open to believing in his existence and you don't know whether he exists or not. And let him know that you're open to his guidance and that if any point he would like to guide you and give you wisdom, that you're more than open to that and give him thanks for being part of your life. Just like you would if you had a friend that you appreciated, you know, you would tell them like, hey, I'm really open to your advice and thank you for your kindness and your interest to help me. You know, you can talk to God like that. If you can imagine being God with billions of people all over the planet, just constantly asking you for things, you know, how long would it take if you had one particular friend that called you every day? It was like, Tony, can I get some money? Hey, Tony, can you buy me a new house? Hey, Tony, can you come pick me up at the store? Hey, Tony, can you give me a ride to my friend's house? Hey, Tony, can you give me some more clothes? If you had somebody doing this, it would probably be like three or four days and you'd probably stop answering the phone, right? So each one of us, if we experienced that, we would probably do that same thing. Like we wouldn't 
pick up this phone, right? And here's God not granting wishes, but yet people think that that's what he's doing. People think that he's a genie in a bottle and this bombardment of people asking for things. This is just coming from craving, desire, attachment, where if you understand that it's your own decisions that are leading to certain results, then you just make wise decisions to accomplish whatever it is that you're looking for in life. Rather than looking for God to create change or give you things, you go out and you accomplish those things for yourself through your own wise decisions. And it's important to eliminate any craving that you might have to be with God in heaven. If you've been taught that that's what you need to do and you're craving and craving and craving to be with God in heaven, then you still have craving and you're going to be reborn because of the craving, this mental longing and strong eagerness. So essentially, you need to eliminate attachment to God. He's not attached to us. He loves us unconditionally. He would like to see us all be in harmony and live good lives, but he's not attached to that occurring. That's why he doesn't force things and control things here on earth. When somebody chooses to murder or rape a person, that's that person choosing to murder or rape that person. That's not God doing that. So if God was trying to control things, he would stop that from occurring. But he's not trying to control things. And everything that we experience on earth is based on our own decisions. So if we're attached to God, thinking that it's up to God to change all these things in the world, then we might just be waiting around for God to change our life. But if we understand that it's up to us to cultivate wisdom and make wise decisions in our life, then we can have a relationship with this being of God, potentially experience wisdom that God might share with us, and then we can go out into the world and make decisions that improve our life. The way that this wisdom from God comes about is when you let God know that you're open to his guidance because he's not going to just push his way into your life. But when you open up to his guidance, then it's almost like this fatherly advice or this grandfatherly advice. If you're asking for God's advice and saying, please give me advice now, this is a craving and you're not going to get it. But if you're ever just open to his advice and his guidance and you're just walking down the street thinking about something or contemplating something or you're sitting in a chair in your home just thinking about some challenge that you're working on and then there's this fatherly advice or this grandfatherly advice that comes into the mind this is god that's providing you advice and guidance it doesn't mean you have to run out and go do that right away he's just providing you some suggestions to consider as part of whatever decisions you're looking to make. And this is how guidance from God comes into the mind. It's not going to be a voice from the clouds speaking to you. It's just going to be this fatherly advice that kind of comes into the mind. And then you don't believe that, but you reflect on his advice and decide whether or not that's a wise decision for you. You don't need to conform to what you think God's plan is for you because he doesn't have a plan for you. You have free will. He knows what you're going to do. And that's where he's able to provide guidance. But you still need to use your own independent verification to decide if that's indeed what it is that you would like to do in your life. So he's just going to provide you guidance. And then it's important to understand the natural law of gamma. As I've been describing, is God isn't controlling what's happening. It's cause and effect or action and result of what's actually truly happening in our life. 
So by us understanding this natural law of gamma of cause and effect and gaining the wisdom around that, now we can make wiser choices, that we're not depending on God and waiting for him to improve something about our life. Instead, we're taking the action to now make choices and decisions that improve our life through the wisdom that we've acquired. And you've got teachers like me, you've got other teachers in the world, you've got mom and dad and grandma and grandfather, you've got friends and family, people to talk to and get support and guidance from about any decisions that you're making in your life. You're not dependent on one particular person like me or one particular person like your mom or your dad or a certain friend. And you don't need to be dependent on God. But instead, as you understand this natural law of gamma and you start gaining more and more wisdom and you start clearing out more and more pollution of the mind, the wisdom of God can come through and help you to understand this natural law better and better. So you'll need to understand this natural law of gamma of cause and effect and that God isn't controlling things. And you would need to eliminate any fear. If you've been taught to fear God and that if you don't do things the way God wants, he will punish you in this life or afterlife. This isn't true. You have enough wisdom that you know that you wouldn't punish your child or punish your life partner or punish your parents. You wouldn't send them to hell for eternity based on some mistakes that they made. So if you have this wisdom of a human being, this all-knowledgeable, all-powerful God who has all this deep wisdom, don't we think that he has that same wisdom, that same knowledge too, that he's not interested in sending people to be punished in hell? Instead, it's our own decisions that lead to rebirth in hell. It's not God that's choosing for us to be reborn in hell. If anybody's punishing us, we're punishing ourselves through our own decisions. So if we've been in hell or we end up in hell at some point, that's from our own decisions, not from God. So God isn't judging us, sitting in judgment of us, and we need to fear him and we need to do certain things in order to please him or else he's going to punish us. You can let go of this fear and just be liberated and know that this being hasn't punished you at all in your entire life or any previous lives. Anything that you've experienced has been because of the natural law of gamma. Because of your own decisions, that's what leads to either wholesome results or unwholesome results. So you can completely let go of having to duck and fear and be worried about anything that God may do or not do to you because God doesn't do these things. Anything that we experience is a result of our decisions. Understand that God is actually a practitioner of these teachings because somebody might say, okay, well, if God doesn't punish us, if God doesn't have a plan for us, if God doesn't control us, then what does he do? Well, he's an understanding God. He practices the teachings because he has this deep wisdom, but he's not attached to us. He's not responsible to restrain us from evils that we might do. So if we're involved in something and we're going to end up making an unwise decision, it's not up to him to restrain us. It's up to us to restrain ourselves. So if somebody's going to go murder somebody, it's not up to God to stop that person from murdering. God didn't cause that person to be hateful and have ill will and go murder somebody. He didn't cause that. So he's not going to fix it. So it's not up to him to restrain us from the evils that we choose to do. 
He's not attached to us. Of course, he'd be interested in seeing us all live in harmony through acquiring wisdom. That's what we can essentially do. But he's not attached to that occurring. And this world and all the things that we end up doing, whether we choose to live in harmony with the people around us or not, it's based on our own decisions. And we have teachers like Gautama Buddha who shared teachings with us to help us understand how to do that. Hindu teachings have some teachings in there that help us to do that. Jesus Christ teachings have teachings that help us to understand how to be a better person and live in harmony with others. Prophet Muhammad's teachings have those type of things and there's others as well. For me, Gautama Buddha explained it very, very clearly. In getting rid of this pollution of mind, you can see the truth for yourself, not through belief, but through independent verification. And you can see how your relationships blossom and you can learn how to live in harmony with others. So God is interested in seeing this happen, but he's not attached to us. This is why you can choose to have a relationship with God or not. And you can still get to enlightenment even if you don't have a relationship with God. And someday, should you find out that there is a being of God, then having moved closer and closer to wholesome conduct, then God would be very pleased with that. And I'm sure you guys will have great conversations someday because you will have cleared out more and more unwholesomeness in the mind, more and more wisdom has come into the mind, and you've been able to make more and more wholesome decisions leading to wholesome outcomes. So this is everything that I have to share with you up to this point about you know, what you need to be thinking about if you're going to choose to have a relationship with God. I'm going to pause here and let you guys ask questions, and then I'm going to go into teachings based on if you have no interest in having a relationship with God whatsoever. So if you have a question on anything that I've shared so far, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Yes, sir. On uh, YouTube, Pepico asks, what should I do when I feel lost or the situation is hopeless as a Buddhist, for example, fear that I did not do enough to ensure project success in situations where other religions would tell you to pray. What you do is you reach out to a teacher for guidance. If you're having worry or anxiety in the mind, there's a craving desire attachment that's causing that. And if you're not able to see what that craving desire attachment is, then you reach out to a teacher and you seek guidance through personal guidance or through asking questions in class, sending a private message or posting in Facebook. You can get my help and you can share the situation of what you're encountering. And then I will help you see what's causing that worry and anxiety. It's craving desire attachment. And then if there's certain teachings that you need in order to understand how to make wiser choices, then I'll share those teachings with you. I won't tell you what to do. I won't give you a certain decision to make, but I will share with you teachings that will help you reflect and understand how to make better decisions so that you won't experience that worry and that anxiety. Because that's what's actually causing it is the craving desire attachment. Praying to God isn't going to fix your worry and anxiety. Praying to God isn't going to fix your work project. The only thing that's going to improve these things is gaining wisdom so that now you can eliminate the craving desire attachment that's causing the worry and you can make better decisions at work. And the only way that you get to wisdom is reaching out to a teacher and seeking guidance and then independently verifying that it's working and helping you. Thank you, sir.
Mm-hmm. Um, on Zoom, Brandon asks, if God is a practitioner of these teachings, is it accurate to say a Buddha is someone that experienced obtaining enlightenment from the wisdom of God? The Buddha never says this because a Buddha needs to do the work themselves. God isn't going to just give a Buddha all the wisdom that they need in order to get to enlightenment. A Buddha has to do work. God's going to be there, at least I can speak based on certain experiences that I've had, God's going to be there to share wisdom along the way, but he's not giving a Buddha everything. A Buddha still has to do an enormous amount of work. And this is why they have so much wisdom and they're able to help countless people get to enlightenment during their lifetime. And it's also why they can leave their teachings in such a condition that countless more people can get to enlightenment after their lifetime because they've done so much work that they've cultivated this wisdom. God's not just handing it to them. So the Buddha never talks about getting wisdom from God, but I can share from my experience that God has surely helped me at different times along this path, but there's still an enormous amount of work that you would need to do in training your mind and making wise decisions. Thank you, sir. Uh, Chantana asks, if I have no interest in God, how to communicate or share Buddha's teachings with one that does believe in God or um, about seeing angels? So if there's someone who believes in God and they're interested in learning these teachings, then they can reach out to learn. It's important to remember that your objective isn't to push the teachings to somebody or force or try to coerce somebody into learning. That person has to be able to choose to learn. And there's things that we can do. You know, we can leave a book around. We can ask them if they would like to learn. We can do little things like this here and there. But the real problem, and you already know this, is that there's this craving that you want somebody perhaps to learn and understand these teachings. But each individual person has to choose to learn and understand these teachings. And someone who has an interest in maintaining a relationship with God, they can learn what I'm sharing here and they would still need to learn all the other teachings like the three universal truths, four noble truths, eightfold path, so forth and so on. They're going to still need to learn all that other stuff. But sometimes people think that they're turning their back on God or they're walking away from Jesus Christ to be able to learn the Buddhist teachings. But when they understand that the Buddha isn't a God, he isn't a prophet, he isn't a savior, he's just a teacher, he's just a human being, and you don't worship the Buddha. Because oftentimes people are taught that they shouldn't worship a false god. And if they think the Buddha is a god, they might turn away from the Buddha's teachings. But if they understand that Gautama Buddha taught a lot of very similar teachings as Jesus Christ and Prophet Muhammad and other traditions that teach about God, then they can understand that they can actually learn the Buddha's teachings, improve the condition of their mind and their life while still evolving with the teachings that they already know. So rather than look at it as turning their back on God or turning their back on their previous tradition, they can look at it as those things led them to where they are today in life. And now this other teacher can help guide them even further and continue their progression in life. It's kind of like if you were in college and you were studying a topic like management or marketing. You might have Professor A that teaches you certain things and gets you to a certain point. And then Professor B teaches you that same 
topic, but just different aspects of that topic or that subject and takes you to a different point. And Professor A and Professor B both contributed something to your life. And it's not that you're turning your back on Professor A. You appreciate and have value and gratitude and respect for everything that they taught you. It's just that these two teachers are teaching a similar topic in different ways, different language and different way of explaining it. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, Tony asks, my brother is a born-again Christian. He believes that Jesus is the Son of God and the only way to have salvation is through Jesus. He's concerned about my not finding salvation and is always trying to save me, which causes us to have heated debates. How could I handle this skillfully? Well, when they're trying to convince you that you have to do things their way, recognize that as their craving and their desire, their attachment, they're causing any discontentedness. And don't sit there and argue or try to convince them otherwise. If they would like to try to convince you of this, you can walk away. You can say, thank you for your concern. I understand. I'm not interested in this conversation. But arguing or trying to convince them that you're right isn't going to work because in their mind, they have this deep craving. It might lead to anger. And all of this is coming from the ignorance or unknowing of true reality. And you're not going to be able to change that in their mind. So it's better to not have that conversation and say, you know, we've done this many times. Let's move past it and let's just focus on being brothers. You are going to be Christian and I'm going to do what I would like to do. These are just two different things. See, the challenge that someone like that is having is they're having craving for permanence. They're wanting everybody to do what they do. They're craving permanence, just like the Buddha explains. And they're not going to be able to solve that and get away from that ignorance or unknowing its reality unless they choose to do it. So staying in a conversation where you're trying to convince them of something and they're trying to convince you of something, you've already done that multiple times. It's not working. So it's better to just not even go there with that conversation and focus on having other conversations about other things that brothers would like to talk about and just know that this is a topic that you guys are going to disagree on you're not going to agree and that's okay the problem isn't that he's christian and you're choosing to study buddhist teachings the problem is is that the mind is craving to convince each other of something and the mind's craving this permanence so if you just let go and realize that you're going to disagree and that's okay that's a normal part of life then you can focus on other aspects of life of being brothers that can be more fulfilling and you can have a more developed relationship and you guys won't be arguing with each other about these things. Thank you, sir. Going back to, you had said that God, Brahma, is a practitioner of these teachings. Does this also mean that this being of Brahma is a being that is subject to the cycle of rebirth, sir? They are impermanent. God is not permanent. Uh, they are subject to the cycle of rebirth, but their lifespan is uh, significant compared to any other being. That's why I refer to God as a supreme being, because their lifespan is just enormous, unfathomable. Even Gautama Buddha talks about this, about Brahma's lifespan is just uh, more significant than you can ever imagine. So we know that this earth we think has been in existence for at least 4.5 billion years right billion years 
that the earth has been here. That's our current thinking. It could be longer, who knows, but this is our current thinking. So our life of 80 to 100 years, I mean, it's a blink of an eye compared to 4.5 billion years. So this being of God has existed before this earth. So this being's lifespan is significant, but they're not permanent and they are subject to the cycle of rebirth. This being will at some point no longer exist, just like all of us. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, it appears we have no other questions at this time, sir. Okay, so now let's talk about a situation where you may be not interested in a relationship with God, which is completely fine because my goal in this conversation and in this chapter of the book is not to convince you that God exists. Just like the Buddha, I'm not interested in proving or disproving God's existence. I'm interested in helping you get to enlightenment. And if you're interested in maintaining a relationship with God, I'll help you do that and understand how to do that. But if you're not interested in having a relationship with God, I'll help you do that too and help you understand what you need to do in order to get to enlightenment without a relationship with God. So I'm not here to either prove or disprove God's existence, but instead to help you get to enlightenment through either way, either having a relationship or not having a relationship. If you have no interest in God whatsoever, then there's one thing that you at least need to do in order to get to enlightenment. And what that is, is you need to eliminate any kind of anger, hatred, or ill will that you might have towards God. If you've been taught that God does horrible things and you've developed any kind of anger, hatred, or ill will towards God, you need to at least practice loving kindness for all beings. Gautama Buddha taught loving kindness for all beings because that's the antidote to anger, hatred, ill will. If you even have a smidget of anger, hatred, or ill will towards any being whatsoever, then the mind isn't going to be enlightened. So this being of God, if you're going to say that this being doesn't exist, which is completely fine, you need to at least get to a point where you understand that you have no anger, hatred, or ill will towards this being. Because there are some people in the world that have really gotten harsh feelings towards this being of God. If you've grown up in a community where maybe you've been sexually abused or verbally abused or physically abused by people that are supposed to be godly people, and you're associating those actions of those people to God and God has done this to you, then you may have anger, hatred, and ill will towards God. But you need to understand that whatever you experienced in that situation was the actions of those people, not of God. Because God has this unconditional love. He's not going to force these people to do harmful things to other people. Those were the actions of those people. There's been people in classes that I've taught before that just hearing the word God, they got angry and they got really frustrated. Or some people have even you know, gotten nauseous in classes that I've taught where I've just mentioned the word God. So if these kind of things are happening for you where you're not able to have a calm and peaceful conversation, it's like, yeah, God exists or no, God doesn't exist. And just be comfortable in your own decisions about that. And you have anger or hatred or ill will or this craving to debate that God exists or God doesn't exist then this is still craving and it's going to lead to your discontentedness. So you need to at least get to a point where you have 
no anger, hatred, and ill will towards God, and that you can practice loving kindness for all beings. So that if you have no interest in a relationship with God and you feel like God doesn't exist, and somebody mentions the word God, you're completely fine with that. You don't need to convince that person otherwise. You can just be completely peaceful and joyful if they would like to talk about God up to them. If you are not interested in a relationship with God, but you think that he does exist, but yet you're harboring anger and hatred and ill will, you're not going to be able to experience enlightenment because any kind of anger, hatred, ill will that you harbor for any being whatsoever, it's not going to be just that being that you have this anger, hatred, and ill will towards. It's going to be other beings as well. So if you harbor anger, hatred, and ill will for your dad, for example, that's going to also boil over into your personal and professional relationships and other places of your life. Or if you harbor ill will or anger towards your mom or a friend or a family member or somebody who's done something harmful in the past, that anger, hatred, and ill will is going to boil up and it's going to affect other relationships that you have. You can't harbor any kind of anger, hatred, ill will towards any beings whatsoever. So this being of God, who is a being, you would need to at least get to a point where you just have a general interest in seeing this being be well. If you have the thought that this being exists, may they be well. And if you have the feeling that they don't exist, okay, they don't exist. But if you ever find out that they do exist, okay, well, I wish them well. You have no kind of ill will or animosity or bitterness towards this being. So this is everything that I had to share with you guys today on this topic. I'll just open up to any questions about today's topic that you would like to talk about. And then if there's questions outside of today's topic that you would like to bring up, you're welcome to bring up those as well. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like, and the moderators will help you with that. Um, yes, sir. There were a few questions that were closely but not directly related to today's topic that could be asked at this time. Um, on YouTube, Pepico asks, can we say that the Buddha has transcended the conceptual realm, maybe going beyond space and time? A Buddha who is alive, they haven't gone beyond space and time. They're still in existence. They're still in the human form. And they're going to be focusing on sharing their teachings to help countless people get to enlightenment. And they're going to be focused on preserving their teachings so that after their death, that more beings can get to enlightenment. Once they die, the Buddha didn't declare what's next. So any kind of impression of what you're saying would not be true reality. Because if we think that a Buddha has gone past time and space, then we're injecting our own thoughts into what we think is occurring with a Buddha. It's important to look at what the Buddha has taught about what a Buddha is and understanding what a Buddha does. And once they die, understanding that he didn't declare whether he exists or doesn't exist. Essentially, what a Buddha has done is they're just a human being like you, and they just have the ability to acquire this wisdom on their own because they have one other quality that I haven't mentioned yet in this class, but I've mentioned in previous classes, is not only do they meet those three criteria that I mentioned, but they also have this profound memory, that they have this unlimited memory of remembering things in this life in their previous lives as well. 
The way that an average human being's mind works is it's like a hard drive. You have a certain capacity, maybe one gigabyte or you know one terabyte or what have you. And then once you get to that amount of data in your mind, you have to delete old files in order to write new files. So this is why you kind of remember a few things from your childhood, but by and large, most of your memories are within the last five or 10 years or so, right? And then as you go further back in life, your memories are more spotty because you had to delete certain files in order to store new files and new memories. A Buddha actually doesn't have this capacity limit. They have an unlimited capacity to be able to remember things in their current life and in their previous lives. And because of that, they accumulate wisdom over all their previous lives and their current life that amounts to them being able to independently observe these natural laws of existence and then to be able to explain them in such a way that people can understand them during their lifetime. So they're accumulating wisdom over countless lives. And in their last life, they've accumulated enough wisdom that they can get to enlightenment on their own without the guidance of anybody else. And because of that cultivated wisdom, they now their wisdom is so deep and so profound, they can share it with countless people during their lifetime. And then they also can remember countless details about their students' lives. And this is one of the things that helps them to be a very effective teacher, is that they understand the craving, desire, attachments of all their students. They understand their lives and their work life and their personal life. They can just have an unlimited number of students, essentially, and remember all these details to be able to give them targeted teachings when they're having challenges in their life. So this is the quality of a Buddha's mind that's allowing them to get to enlightenment in their last life without any kind of help or guidance from anyone else. And then when they share those teachings, you can get to enlightenment and you'll experience the same liberation in terms of your mind will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, but you'll still be in this human form. There's nothing really mystical or magical about a Buddha. This term Buddha is just describing this human being who discovered the teachings by themselves because they have this profound memory that they are able to get to enlightenment without the help of any teachers or guides. They dedicate the rest of their life to sharing those teachings and helping countless people get to enlightenment. And then they preserve their teachings in such a way that countless more people can get to enlightenment after their life. So there's nothing mystical or magical about them. They're just a human being. They tell jokes, they burp, they fart, they blow their nose, they pick their nose, right? They, they do all these things that other human beings do. It's just that they have this profound memory that's accumulated wisdom to the point where now that they've solved this problem of the discontent mind. They have such compassion and loving kindness for the world that they dedicate the rest of their life to sharing those teachings to help countless people in the world. Because a Buddha knows that they have discovered these teachings and they know that they're a Buddha. And if they just die with their teachings and not share them, then the world and humanity is just gonna to continue to suffer. So a Buddha has such loving kindness and such compassion for the world and all the beings in the world that they're willing to dedicate the rest of their life in countless hours of time to help as many people as possible to get to enlightenment during their life. And then those beings who get to enlightenment during their life, they are still around once a Buddha dies. And now those beings are gonna help more beings get to enlightenment. 
So there's nothing mystical and magical about a Buddha. They just have this certain quality of mind based on their gamma, based on this cause and effect that their quality of mind can do this. And a Buddha is very rare. The last Buddha that the world is currently aware of existed 2,500 years ago. And that Buddha described these teachings very clearly for us. And then they were preserved in the minds and in the hearts, even though there's no way to store anything in the heart. I just say it that way because people had such compassion and such affection and such gratitude and appreciation for the Buddha that they had his teachings in their mind. But I also think of it as they probably had them in their heart as well with this deep compassion and you know, that the Buddha exhibited, they also had that same loving kindness and compassion for him. And now that he's died, there's nothing that he can do to help us. He lived his lives. He acquired and attained enlightenment in that last life and he died. And he's nobody that you can pray to and come to help you. But instead he did his work. He, he did a lot of work to be able to now have these teachings like we do today that all of us can learn and practice these teachings and experience that same liberation of mind. It took an enormous amount of dedication and diligence for him to do what he did in that last life and all of his previous lives as well. So now if you demystify that a Buddha is not a god, they're not a being that you know floats around and taps people on the head and gives them enlightenment or any of these other kind of mystical, magical things that you hear, but they're just a human being that has deep loving kindness and compassion in that wisdom that they've cultivated then is here and available for us to be able to help people get to enlightenment. They're a human being just like you. So the more that we think of a Buddha as a human being, the more that you start to understand that you have the ability to get to that same mental state. You won't be a Buddha when you do it because you won't meet those three criteria and then you won't have that fourth aspect of the mind, but you'll still be able to experience the peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So by humanizing the Buddha, then you realize that what he accomplished in terms of his mental state of enlightenment, you can do the same thing. So if we get away from any kind of mystical or magical thoughts of, what a Buddha is or what a Buddha isn't, then you start to realize like, hey, I can do this too. And that's why I use this picture of the Buddha where he's a human being because oftentimes statues and different artwork and stuff, they really elevate the Buddha to a point where sometimes people think he's this mystical, magical figure. And then it's almost like you can't get to enlightenment because he's so mystical and magical. But that's not what he taught. He taught that you can get to enlightenment just like him. So by seeing this imagery of him looking just like a human being, then you start to realize that he's a human and you can get to enlightenment just like him. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, on some talk, I had a question. Do we know if God created more than five realms of existence? There's only five realms of existence. I know this from direct experience of all these five realms, and that's the way that the Buddha knew these five realms as well. You'll see people that are teach six realms or eight realms. I've seen upwards of 32 realms sometimes that people teach, but this isn't what the Buddha taught. When you go back to his original source teachings, you can see that he only taught five realms. And depending on what your experiences have been in life, 
you may have experienced beings from these realms. So, of course, the human realm, you know that one really, really well because you're human. Uh, you probably know the animal realm really, really well because you see animals all the time. But if you've ever been in contact with heavenly beings, you may know of the heavenly realm. If you've ever had contact with afflicted spirits or ghosts, then you know about that realm. If you've ever been in contact with hell beings, beings from hell, then you will know that that realm exists. And there's no other realms that beings are interacting with you from. It's all of these five realms that the beings are available in contacting you in. If you haven't had contact with beings in all five of these realms, then you can just know with certainty that the Buddha taught these, I'm teaching these, other people teach these, and someday as your mind awakens more and more, you may end up having contact with beings in these other realms if you haven't already. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Alaska had a question on Zoom. Um, if they could ask a question about visas. Was Jesus an enlightened being or someone who was on the path as a once or a non-return? The way that I look at Jesus Christ, based on my experiences and what I know about this being, is that during his lifetime as Jesus Christ, he was sharing teachings that are very similar to the Buddha. His mind wasn't fully awake. He wasn't a perfectly enlightened Buddha. He wasn't enlightened. So he still had some pollution in his mind. Therefore, his teachings weren't as clear and as concise and precise as a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. And we know that his teachings weren't 100% captured based on what he actually taught because he only taught for about one to three years before he was murdered. And then the people that wrote down his teachings, they had only studied with him for a brief period of time. So what we see in the Bible, I can share with 100% certainty, is not 100% of what Jesus knew and understood and what he taught. We know that because in one to three years, Anybody who has learned with a professor or a teacher for one to three years, you wouldn't be able to write out a exact replication of what that person taught you in that one to three years. So the teachings that we see in the Bible are represented by other people who didn't really understand 100% of what Jesus was teaching himself. And we know that Jesus wasn't fully enlightened because we know that an enlightened being doesn't have anger. And we know through the recounting of some of the stories in the Bible that he did have anger, right? So even though the Bible isn't 100% accurate, we can see certain things across different books that are similar. So Mark and John and Paul and Peter and these different people who are describing Jesus's life, we can see some commonalities and we can say, oh, well, if three or four or five different people are writing the same thing, then this must be true. So if Jesus is throwing people out of the temples and knocking tables over at temples and you know upset and angry at these people who are in the temples, we know he had anger. So we know his mind wasn't fully enlightened. And we also know that at the end of his life, he said, I will come again. And if somebody's coming again, that means they're being reborn. That means they're not fully enlightened. So as a person who is sharing teachings to help humanity, which is what he did. You know, we're not saying that Jesus is less of a person. We're just saying that, wow, he helped a lot of people during his lifetime. What his objective and his goal was, was to convince people that there was only one God, 
the Buddha had already delivered the teachings to liberate the mind and teach people how to get to enlightenment. But during the Buddha's lifetime, he didn't really address this misunderstanding that there was all these different gods. There was many different gods. He was just focused on helping people get to liberation of mind. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, there was still belief in multiple gods. So 500 years later, approximately, Jesus comes about and performs all these miracles to convince people of who he is and then lets them know, hey, there's only one God. And nowadays, if someone does have a belief or understanding of God, they believe in just one God. There's still people who believe in multiple gods, but by and large, if you're having any understanding of God, most people in the world today have an understanding of just one God. And this was as a result of the work that Jesus Christ did. So oftentimes what people do is they like to argue and fight and bicker over who's right and who's wrong. You know, Buddha was right, Jesus was right, let's fight over who's right and who's wrong. But if you look at these things as a continuation of events that are happening, and if you understand that humanity's mind needs to gradually evolve, that it's not possible to have just one teacher share all the wisdom that's needed for all of humanity, that humanity's minds need to gradually evolve, then you can look at Hindu teachings and see how they contributed something to our humanity's wisdom. You can look at the Buddhist teachings and see that he contributed a significant amount of wisdom. You can see Jesus's teachings provided a certain amount of wisdom. You can see Prophet Muhammad's teachings provided a certain amount of wisdom. And when you are experiencing enlightenment and you get to this enlightened mental state and you understand what it takes to get to enlightenment, you can see more and more of these commonalities between all these traditions. So Jesus was here to help us understand that there's only one God. And then his work wasn't finished. That's why he said, I will come again and he will be reborn. So we knew that he's not enlightened. And we knew from his anger that he wasn't enlightened during that lifetime. But coming back a second time and getting to enlightenment, then he would be able to share any truth if he got to enlightenment as a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha on his second life or his third life. Because in Hindu teachings, they have certain beliefs and certain things. In Buddhist teachings, they have certain beliefs. But it's really about cultivating truth. But the Buddha talked about a new Buddha that was going to come. And Jesus talked about coming again. And Jewish practitioners are thinking of a certain individual who's going to come and help them to learn more. And Muslim practitioners are thinking that there's somebody who's going to come next. What all of these traditions aren't realizing is they're actually talking about the exact same person. There's only one person. And then that person is going to deliver a final truth that helps all of humanity get to enlightenment. And even though in the Buddhist teachings, we call this person Maitreya Buddha, and in Christian teachings, we refer to this person as the reborn Jesus Christ, or in Muslim teachings, they have another way of referring to this being and so forth and so on in all these different traditions. They're actually pointing to the same exact person who's going to deliver a final truth that's helping humanity to now create what Jesus Christ called heaven on earth. And the teachings that we currently have in the Pali Canon are not 100% complete. We know that there are certain things that the Buddha taught that just didn't get captured. For example, loving kindness meditation. We know that he taught loving kindness meditation, but how he actually taught it wasn't captured in the Pali Canon. The Bible that we have, 
We know because of impermanence that what Jesus taught 2,000 years ago wasn't 100% captured in the Bible. And what we're looking at in the Bible today isn't 100% of what Jesus actually taught. And I will say the same thing about the Quran as well, even though people might disagree with what I'm sharing. We know from the universal truth of impermanence that it's not possible for someone like the Buddha, Jesus Christ, and Prophet Muhammad to teach so many hundreds and thousands of years ago. And what we're looking at today in a book is 100% of what they taught during their lifetime. It's just not possible because of the universal truth of impermanence. So that's why this final person, this final being needed to come into the world to be able to then share the teachings that are going to help all of humanity to get to enlightenment and ultimately create what Jesus was talking about as heaven on earth. So yes, Jesus contributed important teachings to humanity, but he wasn't fully enlightened. He wasn't a Buddha. He was a once returner, in my opinion, during his last life. And then by him being reborn, then attaining enlightenment on his own, he would then be a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha and he would be an otter hunt and he would no longer be reborn after that. He's delivering his final truth to help all of humanity to understand what it takes to get to enlightenment. And as part of his teachings, he'll, of course, have teachings about God to help people understand God in a more detailed way. Because when he was here the first time, he didn't have full understanding of this being as well. Because if you think about the stories of Jesus Christ, during his lifetime, he said, you reap what you sow, right? Meaning the natural law of karma, that everything you experience is based on your choices and decisions. He said that in his teachings, you reap what you sow. But when he was being crucified, he called out to God and he said, why have you forsaken me? As if God was the one who caused his death. But if you reap what you sow, then we understand that his death and crucifixion was based on his own choices and his own decisions. If you go around your neighborhood and you toss tables of people in the temples and churches, if you start tossing people out of the temple very aggressively and stuff, do you think people are going to be kind and wanting you to be around? So when it was time for Pontius Pilate to decide who's going to be released from the jail, this murderer or Jesus, who do you want me to crucify? The people said, crucify Jesus. We want you to kill Jesus. That was the result of his decisions of going around and throwing people out of the temple, right? And, and aggressively interacting with people. And I'm not here to say Jesus was wrong or he did anything necessarily bad or that he's a bad person. I'm just saying that as being a once returner, still having pollution in the mind, not fully understanding these natural laws of existence, this is why we can see a teacher that teaches you reap what you sow, but then at the time of death, call out to God and think that God is actually causing his death. And this is what led to confusion in humanity that some people think that God is the one who's causing their death because of the way that Jesus called out to God at the time of his crucifixion. But Jesus returning and then clarifying this so that people know with 100% certainty that God doesn't cause the death of an individual, then there can be more clarity about what is really transpiring on this planet in these natural laws of existence that God's not 
killing people and taking people and punishing us, but instead it's our own decisions. And the reason why we die is because we were born. That's the only reason why we die. God's not killing us or taking us away. It's because we were born that we end up experiencing death. So Jesus contributed a a significant amount of teachings to the world, as did these other teachings. And when we can see the commonalities and we can talk about the commonalities and the similarities, and we don't feel like we need to argue, then we can all sit in one room and have great conversations with each other. Here at the temple in Thailand that I teach at, I have Christians and different people that come and learn with me. In my class yesterday, I had Christians and atheists and people who would consider themselves Buddhist. They were all in the same room. We were all talking about the teachings that lead to enlightenment. I've been to Egypt and taught Muslim practitioners, and I've taught Hindu practitioners and all different type of practitioners. So when we understand that all these teachers are contributing teachings to improve humanity, then we can all just sit and work on creating heaven on earth where we all live harmoniously together rather than fighting over who's right and who's wrong, because all of these teachers were right about certain aspects of their teachings. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, I'm interested to thank those who are waiting on those questions for their patience. Um, and then I see that Rick has his hand raised, so let's go to him, sir. Yes, thank you, Linda. Um, we have a few questions from Chris to Facebook. The first one I'll ask is how often are Buddhists born in the world? So there's not any set frequency or time frame when a Buddha is going to be born. Gautama Buddha lived over 2,500 years ago. He died in 483 BC, what we would consider BC. Some people refer to that as BCE, which means before common error. And during his lifetime, he said that 2,500 years after his death, that there would be a new Buddha. And this is what he shared. And that time frame would be 2017 is when this new Buddha would arise in the world. But keep in mind that when a Buddha arises in the world, they're not going to go out on the news and say, okay, I'm a Buddha now. Everybody come bow down to me and learn from me because I'm a Buddha, right? Because that would be arrogance. That would be ego. A Buddha doesn't do that. And even if a Buddha did do that in 2017 and went on the news and declared that they were a Buddha, people wouldn't believe them. So anybody who arises in the world who's a Buddha, they're just going to start sharing their teachings and helping people get to enlightenment. In fact, it's better if people didn't know who a Buddha is because one of the powers or one of the strengths or one of the qualities that a Buddha has is that nobody knows he's a Buddha. And then in this way, he can more effectively observe the mind of his students and then be able to help them get to enlightenment. If everybody knew who the Buddha was or that this person is a Buddha, and there was a way to actually confirm that with 100% certainty, then people would be on their best behavior when they're around this person. You know, they'd be bowing down to him. They'd be doing all kinds of things. And this Buddha would actually be hindered because they wouldn't be able to observe the natural qualities of people's minds. And then seeing those pollutions, they wouldn't be able to then offer them teachings to improve the pollutions because all that Buddha would be seeing is all this kindness, politeness, respect. They wouldn't be able to see the harsh speech, the argumentative speech, the disrespect, the ego, and all these other things, you know, the wrong speech. They wouldn't see any of that because everybody would be on their best behavior around this person. So the frequency of when a Buddha appears isn't set and determined, but 
during Gautama Buddha's lifetime, he did say that there would be another Buddha 2,500 years after his death. And based on when he died, that would be 2017. But you shouldn't expect that that person is going to you know, get on the news and declare that they're a Buddha. Instead, they're just going to go about their work very humbly, very peacefully, sharing their teachings, helping countless people get to enlightenment, and preserving their teachings so that after their death, countless more people can get to enlightenment. Thank you, sir. Um, Chris has several questions about Maya or Mara, and I want to read all of them, and then I'll go back and uh, read them individually. So the main question is, what is Mara or Maya? And then the sub-questions are, is there more than one? Do some cultures or secret societies worship Mara? Is it written that Mara tried to tempt Gautama Buddha into complacency? And in what way is Mara visible in modern society? So let's go back to the top question is, what is Mara? So Mara is this being that is associated with the realm of hell. They're an unwholesome being. They are only interested in harmful things happening in the world. And they then influence that harmfulness. They can't control, they can't dictate what happens, but they can try to influence a person's mind to go towards something like drugs or to go towards sexual misconduct or to go towards killing. They can't force this being a human being to do those things, but they can try to influence it. So it's this being that's only interested in harmful things and unwholesome things happening in the world. Thank you, Tishri. Is there more than one? There's only one being that is Mara. In in other traditions, we might refer to this being as the devil or Satan or Lucifer, but it's all the same being, just different language being used to refer to them. Okay, and that segues into the next question. Do some cultural secret societies worship Mara? Absolutely, right? There's people who are Satan worshipers or worshiping the devil. You know, those things happen. People that are, you know, into that type of practices. And he asked about the legend, um, is it written that Mara tried to tempt Gautama Buddha into complacency? Mara is trying to tempt every being that is unenlightened. And during Gautama Buddha's lifetime, when he was unenlightened, Mara was trying to tempt him because Mara has quite a bit of wisdom, not as much wisdom as God, but has quite a bit of wisdom. And Mara knows a being who is going to become a Buddha. And a Buddha arising in the world is like the opposite thing of what Mara wants to occur because Mara wants to incentivize all this unwholesomeness and all this calamity in the world. And if you look around the world, Mara is doing a really good job at it, right? Influencing this kind of unwholesomeness in the world. So a Buddha arising in the world is like the worst thing that could happen for Mara because a Buddha arising is going to share all these teachings to help improve humanity and bring wholesomeness to the world. So with Mara knowing who is about to become a Buddha, Mara is going to try to tempt that individual into not becoming a Buddha and not getting to enlightenment. So Mara is going to be trying to influence all beings to do unwholesomeness, particularly a Buddha, because Mara is not going to be interested in seeing a Buddha arise because that's like the direct opposite of Mara is a Buddha. But Mara is a formless being that has you know, all this power to influence and wholesomeness, but a Buddha is a human being who has the ability to share teachings to help people to cultivate wisdom to not do unwholesome things. And once somebody gets into the first jhana, 
their mind can no longer be influenced by Mara. But until the mind gets to the first jhana, it can still be influenced by Mara. But the Buddha talks about once you get to that first jhana, it's like blindfolding Mara, and Mara is unable to influence you at that point. But you have to be aware because even though you've blindfolded Mara by getting into the first jhana, and Mara is unable to influence you at that point, if you become complacent on your own, you can actually regress out of the jhanas, and now Mara can influence you again. So that's why getting to the first stage of enlightenment is so important, because once you get to the first stage of enlightenment, the mind won't regress. So if you get to the first jhana, you've blindfolded Mara, Mara can't influence you any longer, and now you progress through those jhanas, and you get to the first stage of enlightenment. Now you're destined for enlightenment, and your mind won't regress from that point. MR is not influencing you either because if your mind's not being influenced in the first jhana, Mara can't influence you in the first stage of enlightenment either. Thank you, Teacher David. And it's, you, you've alluded to this, but his final question is, in what way is Mara visible to in modern society? Yeah, so if you look around, you can see all the unwholesome activity. This is all coming from craving, anger, and ignorance, and it's human beings' decisions but Mara is trying to influence that all the time. And the more polluted somebody's mind is, the more successful Mara can be. So that's why as you are eliminating pollutions of mind, getting into that first jhana, you've eliminated a certain amount of pollution, Mara can no longer influence you. So what we see transpiring in the world is because of human decisions, but Mara is surely trying to influence that. And Mara is going to try to cause as much calamity as possible, but it's not Mara that's causing it. It's human beings craving anger and ignorance that's causing it. Mara is just there trying to influence it to occur. Thank you, Teacher David. I have two more questions on Facebook, one from Chris, one from J.A.M. Uh, Chris asks, does a Buddha arising in the world mean the Buddha is born then or that he achieves enlightenment then? When a Buddha is born, they're not enlightened when they're born. They still go through all the same trials and tribulations that everyone else goes through growing up. And then at some point in their life, there's some major event that occurs that motivates them to now go discover the teachings. So this aspect of the mind that I described where a person who's about to become a Buddha has this profound memory and they can remember things from this life and prior lives their mind gets so highly discontent because of their profound memory and remembering all these things that it ultimately motivates them to go fix their mind. In the Buddha's lifetime, Gautama Buddha, he had those four observations, which is something we're going to be talking about next week. He had these four observations, which essentially like flip a switch in the mind and a person who's about to become a Buddha, their mind becomes highly discontent. And now they go off on this journey to try to figure out how to solve their own mind. So this quality of the mind where they have this profound memory that led to this enormous amount of discontentedness during their life is actually what motivates them to go get to enlightenment. And then once they get to enlightenment, that same aspect of their mind that was once detrimental, that led to significant discontentedness, once their mind is cleared of the pollution, now it becomes an asset that now when they're an actual Buddha, they've attained enlightenment, they can now use that profound memory based on sharing the wisdom of what they have acquired. They can now help countless people in the world. So there's kind of like this switch in their mind 
that almost the mind short circuits and then they go off on this journey. And then once they've acquired what they need, they know that they've got the wisdom that led to enlightenment because their mind is no longer highly discontent anymore the way it was in the past. Their mind's been cleared out of all the pollution. And now because they experience such grave suffering, if we like to use that word, because they experience such grave suffering in that last life, and they can remember their previous lives and all the suffering that they experienced in those previous lives. They have such loving kindness and compassion to help humanity that they dedicate that last part of their life to helping as many people as possible to get to enlightenment. That's where their loving kindness and compassion is coming in because they know how much suffering they had because they can remember all those past lives that they experienced. Thank you, Teacher David. And finally, on Facebook, JM asks, would the coming Buddha know that he or she is a Buddha? They would know once they became a Buddha. They wouldn't know when they were eight years old or when they were 10 years old or 30 or 20 years old or what have you. But once they actually become a Buddha, they know that they're a Buddha. And that's why they're just going to go ahead and start doing their work. They're not interested in fame or fortune or any of these kind of things like that. Instead, they're just interested in helping beings to get to enlightenment and they can do that much more effectively if people don't know that they're actually a buddha thank you thank you david these are all the questions on facebook we have one more question on youtube from Pabiko. that is something that you touched on earlier sir why mayahana bodhisattvas are considered wrong in theravada buddhism sir i don't think about it as wrong i think about it as a misunderstanding of the teachings Based on what I know about the bodhisattva vows and what they teach in the Mahayana tradition is that they teach that the goal of this Buddhist path is to not get to enlightenment so that you can experience rebirth and then help more people get to enlightenment. But this is just fraught with misunderstandings because a person wouldn't be able to help others get to enlightenment until they get to enlightenment themselves. So if you are going to hire somebody to teach you how to drive, are you interested in hiring someone that has never driven a car before? Or would you hire somebody that's got 15 or 20 years of experience having driven a car and maybe even learned how to become a, a driving instructor, right? You would be interested in hiring someone who's a driving instructor to teach you to go how to drive a car. You wouldn't be interested in hiring someone that's never driven a car before. So the whole idea of a bodhisattva who's going to decide to not get enlightened in order to help other people get to enlightenment, well, that person wouldn't be able to help people get to enlightenment because they don't even know how to get to enlightenment themselves for themselves. So how would they be able to help somebody else get to enlightenment if they haven't ever experienced it for themselves? So how could you ever teach somebody how to drive a car if you've never driven a car yourself? So that part of it is just really you know, fraught with misunderstandings. And then when you look at the words of the Buddha, he never taught that we should accept rebirth and that we should try to get to be reborn. Instead, he says just the opposite. He says that existence has a foul smell to it. He talks about he doesn't praise existence. And if you look at what the Buddha did, what did the Buddha did? He went off and attained enlightenment himself. And then he came back to the area that he was in and he shared the teachings for the rest of his life, helping people get to enlightenment 
because he understood how to get to enlightenment because he did it himself first. And then you see that he said that he has ended the cycle of rebirth, that he is no longer going to be in the cycle of rebirth. So this whole idea that someone's going to not get to enlightenment and help others, it's just fraught with so much misunderstanding that it's not possible for this to occur. And if this did occur, what is typically taught is that a bodhisattva is waiting for everyone else to get to enlightenment before they will get to enlightenment. Well, essentially, they're holding the door and kind of helping everyone else go through the door. Well, if everybody's going to be a bodhisattva and everybody's holding the door, who's walking through the door? Nobody's walking through the door because everybody's holding the door, right? So there's just so many things that I could share with you one by one by one about how this whole idea of a bodhisattva is just so fraught with misunderstandings. And the Buddha never taught this as part of what he taught. He taught to get to enlightenment and eliminate the cycle of rebirth and no longer be reborn. And should you decide as you're getting closer and closer to enlightenment to share the teachings with others to help them get to enlightenment, then you'll have the wisdom of how to do that. But if you never get to enlightenment yourself, you wouldn't be able to help anyone get to enlightenment. So I don't think about it as wrong or right. I just think of it as a misunderstanding that some traditions and some sects have And this is typically coming from them not learning with the words of the Buddha. And this is why learning with the words of the Buddha are so, 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 so important. So you can see what he taught and what he didn't teach. Because in an oral tradition, it's very easy for teachings to be changed. And over 2,500 years of lots of changes, this is where we end up with things like Mahayana tradition, Vajrayana tradition, Zen Buddhism, and these other so many different things that people are calling what they do Buddhism, but they're not using the words of the Buddha as a basis of their teachings. So if we're going to call something Buddhism, then we should use the words of the Buddha to see what did he teach. And then when you start learning what he taught, then you don't believe it. You independently verify it. And then when you see your discontentment is gradually diminishing in the mind, and the mind moving closer and closer to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, you'll know that you're learning the truth because the condition of your mind is gradually improving. Thank you, sir. Pico uh, has a follow-up question. If one attains nibbana but holds off perinibbana, or death of the body, isn't that what a bodhisattva is doing? A bodhisattva is a concept, is something that people created, in my view, to be able to be complacent. Because if I'm going to say, I'm not going to get to enlightenment, I'm just going to help other people do it. This is being complacent. You're not willing to do the work yourself, but you're going to help other people do this work. So the whole concept of a bodhisattva, it's not a real thing. It's just what people are believing. You can't postpone your parinibbana. What parinibbana or final enlightenment is, this is if somebody has attained enlightenment and then they die after, you know, like the Buddha, he attained enlightenment at the age of 35 and then he died at the age of 80. When he was 35, he attained enlightenment. When the physical body died at 80, he attained final enlightenment or parinibbana. So you can't postpone your death because you're impermanent. You can 
eat good food and exercise and get maybe more time, uh, depending on what other decisions that you make in your life, besides exercising and food, there's a lot of other decisions that go into whether you die or not. You can extend your life by making a lot of wise decisions, but you can't delay your death in order to help other people get to enlightenment. What I would encourage you to do is focus on learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings so that you get to enlightenment. And then if at some point you decide that you would like to share the teachings and help others, you'll have the wisdom of how to do that. You'll be so effective at helping people to get to enlightenment once you know how to do it. But if you don't know how to get to enlightenment, who could you ever help get to enlightenment? So this whole concept of a bodhisattva It's not a real thing. I know people have vows and they really believe in this kind of stuff, but there's nowhere in the Buddhist teachings where he talks about delaying your rebirth or accepting rebirth or teaching other people how to get to enlightenment when you haven't attained enlightenment yourself. He talks about how difficult it would be for you to ever help somebody to attain enlightenment if you still weren't enlightened, if you still have craving, anger, and ignorance in your mind, you would find it extremely difficult to ever help other people get to enlightenment. And the Buddha talks about this in his teachings. Thank you, sir. It appears we have no more questions at this time. All right. Well, thank all of you guys for your questions. This class has gone beyond just talking about God's creative action and we have free will, but you have free will to ask any questions that you like. So that's the way we we hold our classes that once we get through our certain content, if you have more questions, you're welcome to ask those. So thank you all for your questions. Thank you to the moderators for helping. Thank you for Tony for attempting to help. It just sounds like some sound issues were happening there. So I'm sure we'll get that fixed. Uh, There's just some impermanence somewhere. So thank you all for your dedication and diligence to learning. In our next class, next Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 19. This is titled The Difficult Human Existence, Sickness, Aging, and Death. This is where we're going to talk a little bit about the life story of the Buddha in discussing his birth, his journey to enlightenment, his teaching career, and other things associated with his life. And we're going to be talking about sickness, aging, and death because these are part of what we call the four observations that motivated the Buddha to go on this journey to enlightenment. But also sickness, aging, and death are three of the most challenging things for a human being to experience. And typically our mind is highly discontent during that time. So we're going to be discussing sickness. We're going to be discussing aging. We're going to be discussing death as it relates to motivating the Buddha to get to enlightenment. But we're also going to be discussing it as it relates to your life and helping you to understand sickness, aging, and death so that your mind won't be discontent around that. And then this Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation. So you're welcome to join together to encourage, support, and motivate each other by coming together to meditate with each other. I'll be guiding you guys in loving kindness meditation, and you're welcome to join for that, either live or as part of the replay on Facebook, YouTube, or on our podcast. And then, of course, we have our Pali Canon in English study group where we study each Saturday, and you guys are always welcome to join that. So thank you all for your questions. Thank you for attending class. I'll see you in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. 
To access more teachings, visit BuddhaDailyWisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.